Hey, Scott, it's time for another score show. Really? What kind of themeless, tuneless, empty, boring, lifeless, athematic, amelodic dreck are we listening to this time? This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular. I am Glenn Butler, and as we shamble forth into an uncertain future, we do so because while podcasting is a choice, podcasting is also a promise. And we here at the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular, have made a solemn oath to our listener, that every ding-dang year, we will listen to the scores that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences nominates for the Best Original Score Award and discuss the music or other content contained within. And so, we move forth into the nominees for the Best Original Score of the year 2019. Thankfully, I am not doing this alone. I am accompanied, as always, by my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, in honor of the highlight track, really the breakout single of the first score we're going to talk about from 2019, have you ever done a bathroom dance? Usually by the time I'm actually in the bathroom, I can stop doing that dance. The first score we're talking about today is, of course, Joker by Hildur Guthnadotter. Hildur Guthnadotter is an up-and-coming composer who has kind of emerged into the spotlight following the death of her friend Johan Johansson, friend and collaborator. 
She wound up doing the second Sicario movie in his stead and has continued much in the same vein. They had a very close artistic relationship, and so they share a lot of stylistic similarities. Since then, she got much acclaim this past year, not only for Joker, but also for the show Chernobyl. For Joker, what she's provided is one of the most singularly bleak albums that I've listened to in a very long time. She is a cellist, mainly, and the cello features very prominently in the score. The cello is an instrument that can be incredibly beautiful and incredibly heartbreaking, but the way that Hilder uses it in Joker, at times she's scraping the strings more than playing them. She's using it often in a very low register, so it kind of becomes like a rumbling sometimes. It becomes scraping sometimes. The main theme, such as it is, is kind of an uneasy, twisting cello melody that, at the end of the melody, only barely finds a place to rest. It's not what I'd call pleasant music to listen to, but from what I understand of the Joker film, and I apologize, I had hoped not to have to discuss the cultural phenomenon that is Joker the film on the podcast, but here we are. From what I understand of the film, its main use in terms of music is slowly shifting from representing the oppressive forces and the, the sort of pathetic place that the protagonist inhabits and then reflecting the shift into kind of a manic power as he goes through this mental breakdown during the film. So, with that in mind, I understand what the score is doing, and I think in terms of those purposes, it is a technically accomplished piece. Scott, what do you make of any of this? Everything you just said may very well be true, but this is god-awful to listen to. The impression I get from the Joker theme, such as it is, we've talked before about themes that are sort of broken down and distorted for effect. You get tracks like Warp Core Values in Star Trek Into Darkness, or the Dementors track in Harry Potter 3, where a theme that's been established is sort of broken down and parceled out in small pieces for effect. And in those two particular tracks, it works really well. And we discussed a similar phenomenon when we recently talked about Star Wars Revenge of the Sith where the themes in that movie were sort of broken down and degraded to communicate the story in the movie, that the society was breaking down and degrading, that the government was breaking down and degrading. The Joker theme feels like a theme that's been broken down and degraded for effect, but we never got to hear the original version. It's like there's an original version of this theme somewhere that's like whole and complete and sounds coherent, 
And this is the broken, degraded, decrepit version. Except we never hear the original because this entire movie is just broken and degraded and decrepit. Yeah, exactly. It's starting about halfway through a breakdown, and then the film is about him having the breakdown. Like you said, I understand what the music is trying to do, and it accomplishes that goal, I think, in places, but the fact remains that it's just terrible to listen to. It's not a CD you're going to be throwing on for fun. No, absolutely. Also, there's tracks that have that sort of broken, degraded Joker theme, and then there's tracks that just have nothing. Well, a lot of it, especially early on in the score, is very atmospheric. The instrumental palette is limited. That instrumental palette does grow as the score goes on. I listened to an interview with Todd Phillips about this score. And he mentioned that as the score progresses and as the film progresses, the music moves from something that's external to the protagonist and part of what's oppressing him to something that's emanating from him and something that's kind of reflecting and buttressing his power as he becomes the Joker. I hope I can convey through audio the deep, deep eye-rolling, but, you know, we're talking about it, it's fine. At one point in this score, I made the comment that the previous three tracks were nearly indistinguishable from each other. They were just all sort of the same, steady, continuous beat with that Joker theme overlaid occasionally with the violin but they were just all sort of monotonous and repetitive and indistinguishable from each other. And your only comment was to correct me that it was a cello, not a violin. (laughs) Well, your judgment of the style of the music isn't something I can really properly correct, is it? I think if you take it exclusively on its own terms, in terms of the style of storytelling in the film that it's supporting, and in terms of the rather limited range of emotions that it's conveying, I think, especially as I listened to it a couple of times and it started to sink in, perhaps to the detriment of my mental health, It really is doing a lot of what it sets out to do, and it really is effective in the ways that it wants to be effective. On the level of entertaining music to listen to, there's this duality that we have whenever we talk about film music in terms of the purposes that it serves. The main purpose that it serves, obviously, is to be a part of the film or TV show or whatever, you know, that sort of format music is in. But when we buy an album, when we cue something up on YouTube or or, or buy some music just to listen to, that's sort of a different purpose. The reason that I fell so in love with film music in the first place is because it is often so much more nakedly emotional and broadly emotional and and has to express a broad range of emotions to one degree or another. 
than many other kinds of music. And that is something that I find compelling. And that is, on a basic, basic level, what I'm looking for, even aside from, you know, themes to glom onto and the sort of intellectualization that you can get on the manipulations and, and the uses and the contexts for themes that we've talked about extensively in our last many episodes, what I'm looking for on a basic, basic level is an expression of emotion that is compelling. And in terms of the emotions that this music is seeking to express, I think it's accomplishing that. It may be accomplishing what it sets out to do, but I would disagree that it meets any of those other criteria that you just summarized. I mean, if you're looking for music that's more broadly emotional and it conveys a range of emotions, this music doesn't do any of that. This music conveys bleakness, and then more 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 bleakness, and then, bleakness, and then, bleakness, and then it ends. Well, one of the things that I love about the score genre is the broadness of it in terms of all of the different scores for various media that you can find that express different emotions and express emotions in different ways. And so I think there's room for pieces that are zeroing in on one emotion or a narrower range of emotions. You find that broadness in all sorts of different places within the genre, if not necessarily within each particular score. I'm not sure I have a lot more to say about this score. I found it, for the most part, bleak and monotonous and boring and empty in places. Which, as I said, may be exactly what the movie is going for, but it does not make for a compelling listening experience. Yes, of course. Well, purely as a listening experience, it's not a pleasant thing. I was very surprised the second and second and a half time that I listened to the album when I found myself thinking of the score from The Omen, which, in terms of melody and in terms of emotional variety, is obviously like a universe away. But one of the things that I found most interesting about that score was the idea that I heard some years ago that one of the functions of the score in The Omen is to act as sort of the personification of evil and the personification of the demonic influence that the character of Damien in that film can't really exert himself because he's a small child. And so whenever there's a, a gruesome, horrific death of some sort happening on screen and, and, and the score is throwing, you know, chaotic choir at you and the orchestra buttressing all of it, it's kind of acting as the force that's making that happen. It's almost diegetic music to, to kind of aggressively, aggressively support that in the film. And I don't think what the score in The Joker is doing is the same, but I think it's oddly comparable, where I think it kind of does have that transition from representing the forces outside of Arthur that are oppressing him and that are, are making him feel, you know, his extreme resentment. 
shifting into something, like the director said, that's emanating from him, that's reflecting the power that he is creating. I think that's a very interesting thing for a score to do. I think it's a very difficult thing for a score to really accomplish because music, just as a medium, despite its power to convey and reflect emotion, is fundamentally disconnected, just in terms of our experience from dialogue and from visuals and, and from all of the other aspects of a movie. But to have the music so aggressively represent forces that maybe aren't on screen, but are having a profound effect on the characters and a profound effect on the story, I think, again, is something that this is, in its own way, accomplishing. Maybe this is just a sign that I'm not judging it fairly, but I think I'd have to be a much bigger fan of the movie in order to get that much out of it. Possibly, yes. <laughs> One thing I tried with this score, because I knew there was more in it than I was getting out of it, and one thing that I experienced is that it's kind of hard for me to follow a melody when it's so slow and monotonous. I just sort of zone out and lose track. And so I tried listening to this entire album at double the speed, just to see if I would pick up on more patterns, if I would pick up the theme better. If I would have a better appreciation for some things if I wasn't bored out of my skull trying to listen to it. And in parts, that happened. There are subtracks that were immensely improved by listening to them at double the speed. They suddenly had a tempo that I could, like, pay attention to. There was suddenly enough happening that I could, like, devote my attention to it without my mind wandering off to something else. takeaways I got, though, was that there was only one track on this entire album that actually sounded fast, even at double the speed. And there were still several tracks that sounded like empty nothingness, even at double the speed. Like, even at double the speed, some of these tracks are still a long, hard slog. And that's really something, considering that there aren't a lot of tracks on this album that are longer than two minutes. Yeah, that's another thing that we're going to talk about with a couple of the nominees. At least two of the movies nominated have very short scores. The album, at least for Joker, is about half an hour long, which, because of the difficulties that we've discussed with this score, I think fits it just fine. <laughs> Let's move on, actually, to the other very short score that's nominated this year, Marriage Story by Randy Newman.
this is a pretty interesting project for Randy Newman to be doing at this point in his career. It's been kind of a long time since he's done that many dramas, when mostly he's been doing animated films, family films. Of course, this movie's about a family too, so... But Marriage Story is, like I said, a very short score. It has a selection of very short cues for what I understand is quite a long film. And from things that I've read and, and from the music itself, the music is, unlike Joker, which is playing into all of the emotions of the film, Randy Newman's music is playing in direct contrast to a lot of the emotions of the film. The film is essentially about the dissolution of a marriage, and Newman's score is overridingly pleasant, tuneful, cheerful much of the time. There are touches here and there of the most darkness that this score allows for, which isn't significant. But it almost feels like the role of the score in the film, while this relationship is falling apart, while these characters are struggling with each other, is to really, really just pull for them to make up. And it results in kind of a contrast in styles between a lot of the acting and, and the music, but kind of a uniformity of style in the music itself. But of course, as always with Randy Newman, it's very tuneful, it's very melodic. There's a lot of very pleasant music in here. I think I've used that word a couple of times. Scott, you were just talking about how hard it was to listen to Joker. This, I think, was an easy album to listen to. Yeah, I think you've already used the word about six times. But yeah, this score is just entirely pleasant. And most of the tracks are really short, like, you know, a couple of minutes. And so... This is a really easy listen. It's a nice listen. There wasn't much that I found really compelling. I did, when I got to the end, I had the thought that, like, you know, all those scenes of Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver shouting at each other must have been unscored. Right. But I could almost feel the contrast just listening to the score. I could feel the contrast to what I know of the movie compared to these short, pleasant musical cues like even without knowing many details about the movie without having seen the movie i could feel the contrast that this score is building between itself and the drama in other ways this sounds very characteristically like randy newman this sort of short pleasant piano melodies is really pretty stereotypically randy newman yes absolutely Really, the most interesting track I found on here was one track that had a descending figure that sounded a lot like a wedding processional, which I imagine has to be on purpose.
I thought that was a really interesting technique to sort of throw in the middle there. Well, it would certainly be appropriate. Yeah, but for the most part, this score on its own doesn't really do anything other than being sort of mildly pleasant. It's really the contrast between this score and the drama happening in the movie where this score is really doing its work. Like, there are scores where you can listen to the score and the score basically tells you the story of the movie. We just reviewed several scores of that type last month. This score doesn't do that. This score is sort of explicitly contrasting itself to the movie rather than telling the movie itself. Right. It has a very different relationship to the storytelling, I think. And it's sort of... It's not that it's divorced from the storytelling, it's that it's sort of making its own point with the contrast. Right, and I have seen different reviewers have very different reactions to that. James Southall at MovieWave.net, who is pretty much the last film music reviewer that I still read, a lot of them either stopped or became unpleasant, is in love with the methodology in this score finds it very, very intelligent and thoughtful on Newman's part. I did read other reviews where that contrast didn't sit well at all, and, and other people found that instead of being a contrast to the storytelling, that it worked against and detracted from the storytelling. I mean, I have to watch the movie to really judge that, but I found it to be very interesting, just from what little I know of the movie. I thought it was a very interesting approach to sort of have the music underscoring what you would imagine would be the sort of, you know, idyllic, pleasant story of a marriage. Like, when you think of a marriage story, you think of something, like, nice and pleasant and, you know, this is how we met and this is how he proposed and, you know, it sounds like the name of a television series on the Learning Channel or something. And so the contrast between that and the breakdown of a relationship that's being depicted in the film, I think, is a very interesting way of approaching it. And it's a very interesting way of approaching it for Randy Newman specifically. Because if you were to listen to, like, a selection of Randy Newman's scores from the last five or ten years and then say, okay, this person is going to score a film about the breakdown of a relationship where two people are screaming and crying at each other, and it's going to underscore these two powerhouse acting performances from Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, and this is the guy that's going to do it, you would think, well, how the hell is that going to work? But the way to do it is because the Randy Newman style fits perfectly your idea of what a marriage story would be, rather than the breakdown of a marriage that this movie is depicting. And so, by underscoring your expectation, it draws more attention to the story the movie is telling, that is in contrast to what your expectation might be. And in addition to the expectations of a viewer, I think it's also in a relationship with the expectations of the characters for what their relationship would have been or could have been. Yes, exactly. And I think it's got to be that contrast and, and that sort of different perspective on it that is probably what got Newman the nomination this time. 
He does have 22 Oscar nominations, including Best Song, also this year, from Toy Story. He has won twice, but both of those were for Best Song. I think basically what we're talking about here is a score that has a more intellectual relationship with its subject than a lot of scores do, and I think it's definitely that thoughtfulness and that contrast that got it the nomination here. Well, that was the most interesting thing I found about the score, because like I said, just as a bare listen out of context, it doesn't really do anything more than being mildly pleasant. I mean, it's a fine listen, but it's not anything that's like, compelling. Let's move on once again from one Newman to another with Thomas Newman's score for the film 1917. This is Thomas Newman's 15th Oscar nomination. He has not yet won. 1917, of course, is the new blockbuster science fiction alternate history romp that imagines a world where a World War I general cared about preventing a massacre. <laughs> this has nothing to do with the score, but can I just say that struck me watching the trailer for this movie? Where the general is like, you need to get this message through or else we could lose 1,600 men. And I'm like, 1,600 men? What happens in the second minute? Right? Where's the scene where General Colin Firth says, hmm, we might lose 1,600 men, but the line will advance two centimeters? Anywho, I'm given to understand that this film was shot and edited to seem like one of those one-take movies. So they're going for gritty realism, in scare quotes, and so really broadly emotional music that makes you feel the pain and desperation of the characters wasn't really in the cards. And so Thomas Newman's score is very stripped down. It's very atmospheric in places. There are a lot of typical Thomas Newman touches. There are piano pieces that are very reminiscent of Thomas Newman's own style. But oddly, for a Newman score that's nominated for the Oscar, a lot of it sounds very much like Dunkirk. And while I apologized, Scott, for making you talk about the Joker on the show, I apologize for making you listen to something that sounds so much like Dunkirk again. That was my main takeaway from this score, that 
Hans Zimmer and Dunkirk have set the mold for the next five or ten years of war movie scores. Yeah, they're all going to have ticking clocks. They're all going to be unending drones with no melodies. The only interesting part of this score was the tracks where Thomas Newman struggled to emerge from the Dunkirk milieu that he was apparently trying to score himself into, because... Thomas Newman is an actual musical melodic composer. And so that melodicness, that sounds like a word, that melodicness broke through in a lot of places where two minutes of an ever increasing drum beat or whatever would be interrupted by an actual melodic piece. So much of this score sounded like an actual musical composer trying to rein themselves in and sound like Dunkirk. In addition to Dunkirk, even, there's one piece that sounds even more like Zimmer's score from The Thin Red Line, which being from a much earlier phase in Zimmer's career is actually a far better score. <laughs> but the way the rhythms are manipulated in that one cue was very reminiscent of the Thin Red Line, and I found myself thinking that there must be something deeply psychological about the effects that some musical rhythms have on us, like as a hindbrain thing. Because in terms of compositional complexity, there's a rhythm, there are escalating progressions in the background, but just because of the construction of it and the psychological effects that it has, it creates a momentum. So I can say that much for parts of the score. In terms of bare rhythms trying to create drama, trying to create tension, it definitely creates tension. Yeah, but it doesn't do anything else. Like, we talked about this with the Star Wars scores, where, you know, there were parts of that score that told you this character is being incredibly naive, and they are really in over their head, and something is about to happen to drive that point home to them. The score told you about the story and what was happening and what to expect and how to experience the visuals and the plot. Scores like this do literally none of that. The most complicated message that this score ever can convey is be excited, be tense, be bored. Well, it's hitting some very basic psychological buttons. When it goes into the more fast-paced material, the effect is just danger, 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 danger. And so in that way, it's really quite simple. And besides that, I am a little surprised, even though it's Thomas Newman and he gets nominated all the time, I am a little surprised to see something this temp-tracked to hell get into one of the five slots for the awards. I'm... I guess surprised isn't the right word to use anymore. I'm dismayed whenever anything this devoid of musical content earns a nomination. But I've been complaining about that literally since we started doing these Oscar shows. Well, okay. This is our fifth annual Oscar preview, so, you know, welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. Can we go back to talking about 2016 scores? 2016 was a good year for scores. 
No, I'm afraid I must force you to talk about another 2019 score. But in the name of alternating tones, this is another one that is very pleasant, very charming. Let's talk about Little Women by Alexandre Desplat. This is Desplat's 11th nomination, he has won twice, and Little Women, as a film, as a subject matter, and as a score, is precisely right in the middle of his wheelhouse. The historical drama has been his bread and butter for the most part, at least in films in the US that he's done. And the musical content is exactly what you'd expect from Desplat. It doesn't have the strong, central, thematic backbone that, Scott, I know you're looking for. It's more of a series of set pieces with some shared material that kind of moves through, but it, it's all a little more breezy. It's, as I said, charming, melodic, energetic. It has a fantastic energy. It's not something that I think will stay with me for a very long time, but again, it's an easy album to listen to. It's an easy score to understand and appreciate because it has that energy, because it has that melodic bass, because it has a lot of the things that makes music easy to listen to for me. What did you think? I think this score is like a lot of recent Desplat scores. It's melodic, certainly. It's it's not Dunkirk. It's not Sicario. It's not Joker. It's melodic. It's pleasant to listen to. It's even nice to listen to in places. But a lot of the tracks all sound kind of the same to me. And there isn't a single melody in this entire score that I could remember even while I was listening to it let alone now. A lot of it does kind of flow over you. Like, the most common note that I have for this movie that's repeated the most often is various variations on none of this is making any impression on me whatsoever. I mean, it's a pleasant listen for what it is, but it's nothing compelling, it's nothing interesting, it's nothing that stayed with me even from track to track, let alone after I turned it off. That's fair. I think part of that is the very consistent tone of it. There are a couple of pieces that are a little more downbeat and a couple of pieces that are a little more upbeat, 
but for the most part, it is very consistently sprightly and energetic, which again is very pleasant, but in terms of, of contrasts within the music doesn't build a lot of flow points. I did enjoy the fact that I made a note about the piece uh, Telegram from this film, that it's very similar in parts to some of Desplat's work from The Tree of Life, which is one of the few Desplat albums that I find really compelling and that I've revisited in its entirety many times since I first heard it. And your note for that piece was, parts of this track almost sound like they have a memorable melody. <laughs> so maybe we're coming at this slightly differently. I was going to talk about this later, but it's entirely possible my standards are too high right now because we just got done reviewing all the Star Wars scores. <laughs> I mean, I really don't have anything else to say about this score. It's a pleasant enough listen. It's fine, but it's... It's not nothing in the way that Dunkirk in 2017 or nothing. It's not nothing in the way that several tracks from Joker are nothing. But it's just nothing substantial. It's nothing that sticks with me. It's nothing that I am ever going to remember. As I was re-listening to this for the show, I found myself appreciating a lot of the harp work that is in this score. I love a harp. Love a flute. And in this score, they sound crisp as hell. of highlight pieces for some of those instruments, but overall, I think this score is, in terms of quality, definitely on the high end of your prototypical Desplat score, but it is still absolutely your prototypical Desplat score, and so does kind of lose something in terms of uniqueness and memorability. Yeah, for me, the high point of Desplat recently was still The Shape of Water, because at least that had a memorable melody. It, it had a main theme that stuck with you. It was never really developed or varied much. It was repeated nearly verbatim in several tracks, but at least it was a memorable melody from that score. I don't find anything in this Little Women score that is memorable in that way. That's fair. It did also strike me listening to this to prepare for the show right after listening to Joker again that so much of this score is just gentle and nice, which are things that music can be sometimes. Yeah, if I had to compare it to anything, 
it sort of reminds me of the non-thematic parts of Bill Conti's North and South score. Interesting. Like the early parts of that, where, you know, everything is just sort of like pleasant and happy and innocuous. You know, before they get to the part with the war and not any of the parts with that main theme, but it has that same sort of feel of just sort of pleasant filler material. That, that actually is kind of what this score feels like to me. Like, the entirety of every track feels like filler material transitioning between two more interesting or more significant or more heavily developed parts, except there are no interesting, significant parts. That's just the score. On that note, let's move on to our final nominee, a score that I think we know pretty well by now. It is Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker by John Williams. I didn't have a chance to listen to this one, so you're going to have to take over the review. Well, you know, there's a lot of scraping, grinding cello, again, and yet all of it sounds so happy in such contrast to what's going on on screen. <laughs> this is, of course, the 52nd nomination for Mr. John Williams breaking his own record for the most nominations for a living person. I believe Walt Disney had 59. Williams has won five Oscars out of those 52 nominations. The last time he won was in 1993 for Schindler's List. Since then, he's just been kind of the Oscar nominee emeritus. Especially in the past several years when he gets nominated anytime he reveals himself from his semi-retirement to actually do a film. And so, especially after his last two Star Wars scores were nominated, it was a fait accompli that this would be yet another nomination. We, of course, discussed this score extensively on our previous episode, so I'm not sure really what else there is to say about the music itself and its role in the film. I think the only things that are kind of new to talk about are the sort of meta-level politics of nomination, politics of Academy voting, and, and that sort of thing. Obviously, it was going to get nominated. The question now is whether it'll win. And Williams always has a chance to win. 
because he's John Williams and everyone loves him. And also, as this is his last Star Wars score, I think a lot of people would view it as kind of a Lifetime Achievement Award, at least until he actually retires and they give him the actual Lifetime Achievement Award. I think if Williams won the Oscar for this score and didn't win for The Force Awakens, that would be a fucking crime. And it would really be all the proof you need that they award this Oscar based 0% on the quality of the scores being judged. I'm not saying it won't happen. <laughs> I'm just saying that if Force Awakens didn't win and this thing did... <sighs> that would be, again, up to meta-level considerations. You know, when they nominated The Force Awakens, it was up against Ennio Morricone getting his second Lifetime Achievement Award. So, that being said, as we kind of wrap up our look at the current nominees, which one do you think should win, and which one do you think will win? I went into this, and the first thing I said is, okay, I know the winner isn't The Rise of the Skywalker. The best score of the year was not the ninth best Star Wars score. And then I listened to the other scores, and fuck me, I think Rise of the Skywalker might be my favorite. They're just all so empty. In different ways, I acknowledge, but all of them can be described as empty. In different ways, in different tracks. I mean, we've talked about the Rise of the Skywalker already. You know, I wasn't a huge fan of the new themes in that score, but God, they were better than the Joker theme or, you know, a Dunkirk impersonation. And so as much as I went into this specifically hoping to avoid this, I think if I had to pick my favorite of these five scores, it would be Rise of the Skywalker. If I had to pick something else, just because I really honestly believe that this score does not deserve an Oscar, so if I had to pick from among the other four, I think I would go with Marriage Story. That was the score that I found the most interesting. And it wasn't really because of the score itself, but it was because of the way the score was used. So if I had to pick something other than Rise of the Skywalker, I think I would go with Marriage Story. That point you make about the use of the music in itself, I think, is something that could weigh heavily on the final decision. The possibilities are kind of branched. I think there are two separate binary choices. Either they view a Williams win for this as a Lifetime Achievement Award, or an award for the entire Star Wars saga, or what have you, and give it to him, or they don't. And, <laughs> okay. You, you know, either they view it as a Lifetime Achievement Award, or they decide, as they have decided for the last 26 years, that we've given Williams enough Oscars. He's great. He's one of the great American composers. We'll keep nominating him, but we've given him enough. The thing is, you can just as easily make the Lifetime Achievement Award finally give the dude the Oscar for every time that we didn't give it to him. 
that exact same argument could apply to either of the Newmans. Well, true. Yeah. Uh, Randy has a couple, like I mentioned, but they're for songs. I think if they don't give it to Williams for those considerations, or because they just think it's a more fantastic score than I do and way more than you do, if they decide not to give it to Williams, I think it's either Joker or Marriage Story. Because both of those scores have that consideration of the use of music in the film and the things that it's doing for the storytelling with or in contrast to the storytelling. I was going to say, if I had to make a prediction about who will win, I think my choice would be Joker. I think probably Joker would win, yes. Because Joker was nominated for so many awards. And it's not going to win any of the bigger ones. No. It's not going to win Best Picture. It's not going to win Best Director. It's not going to win Best Screenplay. And so I think just sort of because it has so many nominations and it's not going to get the award on any of the bigger ones, I think it's going to wind up with this one. That's definitely another one of those meta-level considerations. I mean, just last year was Black Panther, right? Yeah, you could make the argument that's why Black Panther won, because it got nominated for Best Picture and nobody wanted to vote for it for Best Picture. So they gave it something. Yeah, they gave it score, which it was a fine score. It wasn't undeserving. But, you know, they gave it Best Score, they gave it costumes, I think, or makeup. Well, those are the awards they always give to the blockbusters. Basically. Special effects, things like that. I think it is very likely that Joker wins. And after kind of absorbing the score a little bit, and after thinking about really the way that it's functioning, I don't think that's a disaster. I don't think it's a disaster to have Hilda Guthnadotter have the Oscar. I would be entirely at peace with that. As if the Oscar decisions are, you know, would send me into a deep personal distress. But, I think it would be reasonable, given this list of nominees and the considerations of each, I think it would be reasonable to give it to Joker at this point. And three weeks ago, before they announced nominees and we started really digging into these things, I did not think I would be sitting here saying that. But here we are. This is my life and these are my choices. I don't think it would be a disaster if Joker won. I just think it would be a really strong statement that nothing I enjoy about film scores is anything anyone is interested in. <laughs> well, seems that way sometimes, doesn't it? Like, I should just go back to listening to Star Wars and Superman and the Giacchino Star Trek scores and all those 2016 scores I was talking about earlier. I should just go back and listen to them and stop trying to find enjoyment in modern day Oscar nominees, because I'm not going to find it. Given the broad sensibilities of the Oscars, I think that's likely. But in the spirit of trying to find other things that we enjoy more in 2019 in film scores, after a quick break, we will have our now traditional whirlwind tour of other things in 2019 scores that we liked. That's coming right after this.
personal consideration paid for by the following. Place Your Nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have over two dozen podcasts available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceFoundation.com. We now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaceFoundation Wrestling feed, we dive into topics running the gamut from today's WWE to the glory days of yesteryear and the ins and outs of the territory days. In addition to our full-length shows, we also deliver to you special pod blasts on topics old and new. The Place to Be Nation pop feed is a veritable treasure trove of great content. Offer tremendous shows covering the land of movies, television, life, comics, and sports. Brought to you by the most knowledgeable and insightful folks in the podcast world. You can find all these current shows, plus archives of our previous podcasts from over the past eight years as well, by subscribing to our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others available at PlaceMation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using www.placeimation.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And be sure to join us at our forum at Bigelow34.proboards.com for all sorts of wrestling, sports, and pop culture discussion each and every day where you can make your voice heard. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceMation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. We have plenty of great content for you on our two podcast feeds here at Place to Be Nation. The Place to Be Nation pop feed includes The Hard Traveling Fanboys, the longest running weekly episodic comic podcast in all of Place to Be Nation, featuring the talents of Greg Phillips and Nick Duke. DC4U, an in-depth look at the world of DC comics with Russell Sellers and Todd Weber. Marvel Age, where Nick Duke, Tim Capel, Russell Sellers, and Todd Weber are going through the history of Marvel Comics. Laugh-In Theater, a live-watch comedy movie podcast hosted by Andy Atherton. The Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, which brings you deep thoughts on pop culture and the wider culture from the minds of Glenn Butler and my family and friends. The Year in Pop, a deep dive into pop culture year by year, hosted by Andy Atherton, Scott Criscolo, Dr. G, and our friend Mr. Diamato. Sunday Groove, a podcast for music lovers, hosted by David Sunday. Plus special topical podcasts and pod blasts as events warrant. The Place to Be Nation wrestling feed includes deep dives on professional wrestling from the 80s, 90s, and today, including Body Press Your Luck, a brand new wrestling game show hosted by JT Rosero and Jordan Duncan. Plus monthly pay-per-view reaction shows and much, much more. Don't forget to check out PlaceToBeNation.com. We have a variety of voices bringing you articles on topics in the worlds of wrestling, sports, and pop culture, as well as our mainstays, such as the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, my weekly link roundup covering things I've seen online that make me laugh, make me feel something, and sometimes make me think, and I hope they do the same for you, coming to you every Wednesday. If you're shopping from Amazon, be sure to click on the Amazon banner on the right side of the Place to Be Nation homepage, or use the link PlaceToBeNation.com slash Amazon. And now, back to the show. And as we get back into the show, Scott, as another podcast I listen to asks toward the end of every episode, what's good? Not much. Well, okay. (laughs) Any further detail? We do this thing every year now, where because the Oscar nominees are such a pile of shit, 
we go through and talk about other scores from the year that we enjoyed. Other things that are worth taking note of, other scores that you should seek out because, you know, they're good or interesting or whatever. And this year, there's just nothing. I don't know if maybe it's because we just spent nine and a half hours reviewing 18 Star Wars scores, and so maybe I'm just all scored out. Or maybe reviewing the Star Wars scores raised my criteria so high that nothing can meet it anymore. I listened to dozens of 2019 scores looking for, like, other good stuff. And in all of that, I found one score that I actually genuinely enjoyed from beginning to end. Not just had a good theme or had a good track, but one score that I actually would call good. One score that sort of filled the role of the throne room march at the end of Revenge of the Sith or the Star Wars main title thrown into the end credits of Rise of the Skywalker. One score that is sort of the oasis of goodness in the vast desert of Drek that the 2019 scores are. One score that restored my faith in film scores as a genre. And that score is Spider-Man Far From Home by Michael G. Kino. course it's the Giacchino score. I am me. Yes. I say this honestly and not just, you know, trying to be controversial or trying to have a hot take or whatever, but it was honestly a revelation when I got to this score because I listened to a bunch of 2019 scores. When we do this show now, there's so much more stuff to listen to because we're not just talking about the nominees. And it's not like 2016, where I just happened to have seen a half dozen movies that all had really great scores that I could talk about extemporaneously. And so I go searching through each year's scores. You know, composers that I liked their earlier work, listen to whatever they did in this year. That's how I stumble upon things like Brian Tyler's Power Rangers score. Or, you know year-end lists that other people make that, like, list out interesting scores and then I check them out to see if they actually are interesting to me. That's how I stumble upon things like Daniel Pemberton's King Arthur Legend of the Sword. 
none of that worked for me this year. It was just a whole vast sea of nothing until I got to the Spider-Man Far From Home score, which was, as I said, revelatory in its thematic, melodic focus, which shouldn't make it stand out. That should be like the base standard of any score, but it makes it stand out. It makes it head and shoulders above anything else I've heard from 2019. Chikino brings back the Spider-Man theme that he originally wrote for Spider-Man Homecoming. There's a new theme for Mysterio. There's a new pseudo-Avengers theme for the pseudo-Shield people that Spider-Man meets with in the movie. There's a love theme, which isn't used a lot, but it's pretty interesting. And it just all hangs together so well. There's not huge swaths of this score that I would call empty. There's not huge swaths of this score that I would call eminently forgettable. None of the themes that G. Kino uses fall out of my head as soon as the track is over. None of the tracks make me think of other better scores that I wish I was listening to instead the way that all of the 2019 nominees and a lot of the other 2019 scores make me feel. It's just such a good, solid, theme-focused, melodic score, which compared to the rest of the 2019 output, puts it head and shoulders above anything else I've heard from this year. It is a very good score. In terms of these Giacchino Spider-Man scores, I just love the energy that he brings to it. Spider-Man, as a character, actually, through multiple composers, has almost always had very good music. I didn't see any of the amazing Spider-Man movies, but the Danny Elfman Spider-Man scores were really good. The first Amazing Spider-Man was scored by James Horner, and the theme from that is interesting because it's a James Horner Spider-Man theme. <laughs> Especially James Horner late in his career when the only Hollywood blockbusters that he did that late in his career were for directors that he knew and wanted to work with. You know, the only blockbusters he was doing that late in his career were that Spider-Man and, like, Avatar. So... The themes from the G. Kino Spider-Man scores, I think, are great. I think the Mysterio theme from Far From Home is a fantastic addition. It's memorable, it's distinctive, it has that synth backbeat that really sets it apart from the other elements of the score, because G. Kino scores, especially these big franchise scores, are very, very orchestral. Very, very acoustic-based. So, that was a very distinctive element. The great thing about the Mysterio theme is it works equally well in the beginning of the movie when he's a hero, and later in the story when we find out he's the villain. Exactly. It has elements of both in a way that give it an ambiguity, but not so much ambiguity that it tips the scales before or after the plot twist. The way that it's used and the way that it's orchestrated at various points in the film really help it have one connotation or the other that the bass melody gives it the malleability to fit. One of the things that I really, really loved about the Far From Home score, just one little tiny piece, was at the end of the film when Peter is swinging around with MJ. 
The main Spider-Man theme that he wrote for Homecoming has two settings. It, it has what I call the kid Spider-Man setting and the hero Spider-Man setting that have very different orchestrations, very different tempos, and very different moods to fit the different aspects of the character and the different roles that he plays in his life. And at the end of the movie, they play the hero version with the cadence and the tempo of the kid version. In part of the cue and, and the lead-in to the credits was very, very similar to the same piece at the end of Homecoming, but that one little piece of the main theme played with the arrangement of the hero version and the cadence of the kid version wasn't done the same way in Homecoming. It was much more integrated and much more combined in Far From Home to kind of signify the integration of those two parts of his life as, you know, MJ finds out who he is and, and there's that whole aspect of the plot. What he's doing throughout the movie is trying to figure out how to be both a kid and Spider-Man. And that one little, it only lasts a few seconds, but I found it so subtle and so appropriate for that point in the story. I was just floored by that little, little moment. You see the kind of storytelling you can do with your score when your score has melodies? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, like I said, I struggled to find 2019 scores that I found really interesting or compelling or really all that enjoyable. And Spider-Man Far From Home was really the one. I mean, obviously I haven't heard every 2019 score, so there might be others out there, but of the ones I've listened to, this is the one. I will admit that I have not made as much time to listen to as broad a range of scores as I once did before I discovered podcasts, mostly. <laughs> but I do try to listen to a fair number before we do this show, certainly. And there are other scores from 2019 that I think had their highlights. There are some where there are themes and a handful of pieces that I really, truly like. I'm going to pick up on what you just said. There are other scores that have highlights. Well, yeah, that you hit on that a minute ago, yeah. There's a lot of scores where, like, track one had a really interesting theme and it was almost completely absent from the next 25 tracks. That seemed to happen repeatedly in my perusal of 2019 scores. Or there'd be a really interesting theme in like track 1 or 2, and then it would vanish until track 20, and everything in between would just be generic action-y filler. That does seem to happen. <laughs> it was very frustrating to me. There were scores that I wanted to like, and there just wasn't enough there to like. I do want to just mention a few highlights while we're here. There are a couple of scores by Bear McCreary, who I mentioned in a previous episode, that I appreciated. His score for The Professor and the Madman...
which is a movie that I probably would have been excited to see because it's based on a book that I really liked and never thought would ever be a movie. If only the two stars weren't so contemptible. But Bear McCreary's main theme for that movie, I think, is so compelling. It's, it's such an earworm. Like, every time I try to think about 2019 scores, I get that theme stuck in my head. It's beguiling, almost. The rest of the score is, again, very pleasant. The, the theme pops up from time to time. It's not an entire album that I fall in love with, but that theme, man, I really, really love. There was a particular bit in track one of that score that I found interesting. Because the theme in that track is played on sort of gentle, sweeping strings. But there's a part of the track where there's like a hesitation in the tempo that is the sort of thing that a lot of composers do to really inject a major epic feel. As you put a little hesitation in the tempo before just kicking hard into the main theme. They do it a lot in the Avengers movies, where right before they actually play the Avengers theme, there's always like a pause, a little hesitation. So you can, like, anticipate the hit of that first crash of the theme. And having that epic feeling hesitation in the tempo, while the instrumentation is entirely, like, gentle and sweeping, it was a very interesting mismatch to me. I'm not sure I would say that I liked it, but I found it very, very interesting. See, I think that piece, and especially that part of the piece is sweeping, but I don't think it's gentle, just because it's on strings. It still uses that hesitation to kind of build momentum and, and head into a more dramatic finale for the piece. I don't think that's gentle, really. epic feeling score on strings you don't have to have the brass section to feel epic like the pelinor fields track is almost entirely on strings this doesn't feel like that this is maybe gentle is a too extreme of a word but this is not a hard-hitting track this is not an epic feeling track this is sweeping strings but that hesitation tempo feels like something that should be in a track that is epic. Like I said, it was just, it was, it was a very interesting contrast to me. Unfortunately, like a lot of 2019 scores, I had a lot of trouble finding that theme in the rest of the score. 
Right. Well, it does pop up from time to time, but it's not, like you always say, that backbone that you're looking for. Another Bear McCreary score, which is a very, very different score that I just want to mention briefly, is Godzilla King of the Monsters. I think has one or two highlight pieces that are just ridiculously fun. In a lot of these franchise films and franchise scores, hang their hat on bringing back established themes and kind of hitting that nostalgia button. And he absolutely does that, but the way he does with the original Godzilla theme is just so, like, heart-pumping and fun and joyful. The rest of the score doesn't necessarily live up to those moments, but when it is hitting those beats, it is a joy. See, I don't think I'm familiar enough with the old Godzilla music to pick up on that. I listened to this score, and it was fine for what it was, but again, there was nothing in there that really grabbed my interest. There was nothing in there I found compelling or particularly memorable. If we're going to talk about scores with like one or two interesting tracks, then I think we need to talk about the single best track in any 2019 score, which is the Portals track from Avengers Endgame.
talked before about the problems in a lot of these Marvel movie scores. And Avengers Endgame has a lot of those very same problems. Because there's 35 tracks on this score album, and there are like three to five of them that are any good. The vast majority of the score is just sort of generic, action-y filler material, like the vast majority of most Marvel movies. But the material in the opening, when Tony Stark and Nebula are stranded on the spaceship, that's then reprised for the Tony Stark funeral scene, that is some really, really good stuff. And the Portals track, when all of the rest of the heroes show up at the battle, like I said, that's probably the single best track of any score from 2019. And if the rest of the score was as good as those handful of tracks, this would be right up there with, like, Star Wars and Superman. Unfortunately, the other 30-odd tracks are not. That Portals track really is amazing. Part of what I found so amazing about that Portals track is the context in which it appears. I had gotten the impression, or I had decided over the last several years, that Alan Silvestri, at this point in his career, and at this point in his development as an artist, is the person that you get for the heavy emotional sequences. And we see that in the other tracks you mentioned, the beginning of Endgame and the funeral at the end. You see it at the end of Infinity War, when everything is going to hell for everyone. That he's the person that you get for the heartbreaking string passages and the really deeply emotional pieces that are supposed to just hit you in the gut. But his action material at this point in Infinity War and even Captain America and some of the other scores that he's done this century has been a little more generic action-y stuff, has been a little more lacking, especially for the dude who did Back to the Future and even things like Volcano is, you know, an odd highlight, I think, for him and, and some other things through the 90s and maybe early 2000s. So that was the impression that I had gotten through Captain America and, and, and Infinity War through his Avengers mood. So when that Portals track hit, that floored me. First, because of its quality and its context in the film. I talk about eucatastrophe a lot, and maybe not everyone has heard that word a lot before, or at least before they listened to my podcast. Maybe a lot of people haven't watched the Lord of the Rings Extended Edition DVD extras as many times as I did in earlier times in my life. The eucatastrophe is basically the opposite of catastrophe. A catastrophe is a sudden turn from good to bad. The eucatastrophe is the sudden turn from bad to good. They talk about it in the Lord of the Rings extras because it was a concept that Tolkien used when talking about the story of the Lord of the Rings, especially the arrivals of various armies at the battles to suddenly turn the tide, the eucatastrophe at Mount Doom when the ring is destroyed, spoilers, and the portal scene is, for the Avengers franchise and, and for the whole series, such a fantastic, eucatastrophic turn. And it is scored perfectly. 
the Avengers theme that Silvestri wrote for the first Avengers film, I didn't think was much of anything when I first heard it. It, 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 it seemed like it was mainly just like a fanfare that got repeated a few times and they called it a theme. Yeah, I liked it a lot for what it was. But yeah, I would call it more of a fanfare than a theme in that I think it would be very difficult to build a longer, you know, three or four or five minute piece around that Avengers theme. It is more of a fanfare or a flourish on the end rather than a theme that you can build a longer piece around. And yet. Over time, and through repetition, to the extent that it's been repeated and to the extent that it's been used since then in the further films, over time, it's amassed a totemic importance. It's amassed the heft that it didn't have originally, for me at least. I mean, you could say your frequent point in these shows is about the uses of melodies and the uses of consistent themes that you go back to and add to and make variations on to really enhance their importance over time, you know, over the hour or two of a score and over the course of years in terms of these franchises. And even while so many of the scores in the MCU have been so disappointing, although that has improved markedly in the last several years, even while many of the scores were disappointing, they kept that theme to one extent or another and kept using it and kept emphasizing its importance so that when it hits in that portals scene, it is so epic and I don't want to say joyful because it's not a joyful scene, it's a tense scene, but at the same time, part of the U catastrophe is relieving that tension. And so I think even the fanfare-like nature of it works to its advantage there too, because throughout the second half of that cue, as a fanfare, it keeps repeating and building and building and building as our heroes get stronger, as more allies arrive, as the theme fully hits when they start running toward their enemies. It becomes not just a fanfare, but such an important fanfare and such a good fanfare and such an emotional fanfare that I think you're right. It's absolutely the best piece of the year. It's the best individual piece probably in a long time. I would actually disagree with you a little bit there because the actual Avengers theme part of the track is actually not my favorite part of the track. I prefer the theme that they use in like the first several minutes when everyone is actually arriving and the army is building. That portals theme that they use before they kick into the Avengers theme at the end of the track is, I think, a better, more interesting part. And I would call it joyful. I would call that scene joyful as, you know, as you said, it looks like all is lost and then the U-catastrophe hits. And instead of one man against an army, now it's five. Now there's more heroes. Now there's the Wakandan army. Now there's another army. Now there's spaceships coming through. All of the heroes that we lost in the last movie are back. I would call that a very joyful scene in that our heroes, A, a lot of our heroes are back, and B, the heroes that are here that we thought were about to be lost now have a fighting chance. I would call that entire buildup joyful. 
and then it kicks into the previously established Avengers theme as they charge, where the theme sort of serves as like an echo of the war cry that the characters call out as they begin to charge the enemy. In terms of what you said about it being the best track in a long time, I had actually been thinking about that lately, because it is so obviously the best track from 2019. As I think back to, like, what other tracks would I compare it to, like, over and above the best track of 2019, like, it's the best track since, I think I would have to go back to Warp Core Values from Star Trek Into Darkness in 2013. And before that, the last greatest track before that might be the previously mentioned Charge of the Pelennor Fields from 2003. In terms of individual tracks and individual pieces that I really, truly love, there's, I mean, Ray's theme from The Force Awakens, we've talked to death already. There are pieces by Michael Giacchino from the Star Trek films and from John Carter, which is possibly his very best score. But I'm thinking about them directly in contrast to Portals, and the Portals piece just has so much going for it in terms of, again, the meta-level elements, the importance to an entire series of films, the heft that is given to it by that context. There are Giacchino pieces from the first J.J. Star Trek movie that I think have some of that contextual element of kind of reestablishing the franchise and kind of reestablishing the joy of it. That was one of the jobs that he did there. The pieces from Lord of the Rings, like you mentioned, are absolutely stunning. Were I allowed to move away from film, I think I would still find myself with Chikino with some of his pieces from Lost, which do have a lot of that context given the amount of score that exists in a TV show, especially one as well-scored as Lost was. Toward the end of that series, no matter what you think of the last season or three, a lot of the music does have that dramatic heft. Still, you have to go back a long time, I think. Is that one track in this score good enough that Alan Silvestri should have gotten the Oscar? I don't know that one piece is good enough that he should have won the Oscar, but it would have been entirely fair for him to be nominated. When the Oscar shortlist for 2018 came out and Infinity War was on it, I didn't really see that. I know, of course, there's the awards push from Disney for everything, and the, the score is not without merit. It has some fine stuff in it, but I just didn't see it. When the 2019 shortlist came out and Endgame was on it, that's entirely fair, I think. I think it would have been entirely fair for it to be nominated. I think that's an interesting question. Are, like, I mean, even apart from the one singular track we've been talking about, are four or five really great standout tracks enough to earn a nomination or even an award? I'm sure awards have been given out for less. I mean, maybe my dissatisfaction with the rest of the 2019 slate is showing. Well, regardless of anything else, I think the pieces that we do appreciate from this score show a lot of the things that you can do with really good, effective scoring in a film. And that, I think, given the prominence of the context in which it was placed, I think that's enough to get a nomination. 
Regardless, I am glad that we were able to look at a few things that we actually did like and end this show on more of a positive note. Scott, the time has come, once again, for that question I know you hate the most. Can you teach the listeners to do your bathroom dance? Let me tell you something. Showing people your bathroom dance is not the way to introduce yourself at parties. So that's why I don't make a good impression? Oh, wait, I mean, never mind. Where can people find you on the internet? I am on MySpace at Spectacular Scott, where I don't really post much because I don't really know what that site is for. And I'm also on Twitter at Spectacular Sco, where I mostly retweet people because I don't pay enough attention to things to have my own original thoughts. Well, I'm glad you've got a podcast, then. This is where my original thoughts go. That's why we do, like, three episodes a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dear listeners, if you would like us to do more than three episodes a year... Please let us know what you would like us to talk about, and we'll see if we have opinions on it. If you would like to follow me on the social media internet space, you can find me on the Twitter, the Tumblr, the Instagram, at Bun. You can find me at placetobenation.com, our fine hosts, every single Wednesday morning, 9 a.m. sharp, U.S. Eastern Time, with the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, a weekly link roundup of articles and items that I have found entertaining or amusing or thought-provoking in some way or another, and I hope you do too. I am also obsessed with the Pokemon Go game as of late, so if you would like to find me on there, just message me on one of any platforms, and we can make that happen. On that note... Thank you again, dear listeners, for being with us. Thank you, Scott, for being with me and listening to 1917. We will see you next time. anymore i'm gonna go do a bathroom dance <laughs> save oh. that that's the outro <laughs>